Let me ask you to open up your Bibles this morning to the book of Daniel and chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. And this will be our seventh and final message on Daniel chapter 1. And I want to assure you, I do not intend to preach that many sermons on the other chapters of Daniel. I anticipate only two sermons on Daniel chapter 2. And so we will be picking up the pace a bit. I actually hadn't intended to preach this many on chapter 1, but I couldn't squeeze in uh, everything last time, and so uh, we had to have uh, one more sermon on the final portion of Daniel chapter 1. But I do hope that you've benefited from the material that we've covered both in this chapter and uh, the introduction that I tried to give to to this book. Uh, I do believe it's a wonderful book and that God uh, can do many mighty things through it as we study. And so uh, I hope that you've been encouraged already and certainly pray that you will continue to be so as we study the book of Daniel. Well, as you're finding your place, let me mention to you the name of Rick Berry. In the basketball world, Rick Berry was an amazing player. Uh, He is in the Hall of Fame, and he was named one of the 50 greatest players in history by the NBA. He is the only player to have ever led all others in scoring during a season in the NCAA, in the American Basketball Association, and in the NBA. And when he retired from basketball, his 90% free throw percentage ranked first in all-time NBA history. And in fact, it was his free throws that made Rick Berry famous. Nobody more consistently made their free throws than Rick Berry. And yet, while other professional basketball players struggled from the line, it seemed that none of them were willing to learn from Barry. Why? Because Rick Barry made his free throws using the granny shot. All the other players shot their free throws overhanded, but not Rick. He shot his free throws underhanded, granny style, and he made his shots. I recently heard an old interview with Rick Berry where he talked about the numerous times he was approached even by coaches to help certain athletes with their bad free throw percentages and to help improve their game. And even though he had the expertise and he had the tools to truly help these guys become better players, they would not listen. Why? Because it looked dorky. The granny shot was considered uncool. Uh, Even superstars like Shaquille O'Neal, who famously stunk from the free throw line, chose to continue being bad at free throws rather than to risk the ridicule and the mockery of being seen in public shooting granny shots from the line. And it wasn't just that these players feared being laughed at by the public. They feared being laughed at by their fellow players players. They didn't want to be the butt of jokes in the locker room and around the league. Well, that's what peer pressure can do. Sometimes when we think of peer pressure, we think of something that that kids experience and teenagers experience, right? They, They are pressured to be like their friends in some way. 
But peer pressure is something that adults experience just as much. So know that, kids. Know that, teens. Peer pressure doesn't disappear when you turn 18 or when you turn 21 or when you get married. It it continues. Every day, the choices and the expectations of those around us are like a constant wind beating against us. And we often find ourselves carried away to join our peers in the same choices that they have made. They can be good or they can be bad. Peer pressure can be positive. Peer pressure can be negative. I was thinking about this recently when I was uh, walking down the Tar River Trail. And there is a, just a particular spot there on the, the trail that I consider to be my spot. Now, there's probably 300 other people who also consider it to be their spot. I don't know, but yeah, I, it's a spot that I like to go. It's where I like to walk to the edge of the river, and, um, and I like to just spend a few minutes and pray and just enjoy nature. But not too long ago, uh, after we had experienced several days of rain, a large tree had broken off of the shoreline and fallen into the river right at my spot. And it was a large tree, a very large tree. It was a tree with its trunk still extending to the shoreline with its branches going out into the middle of the river. And I just assumed that that tree would now be there for a long time. Uh, perhaps creating a new ideal fishing spot, right? With all the branches and everything. I was thinking maybe, maybe good fishing in the future. But within a matter of days, not even a week, I was surprised to find that the entire tree was already gone. And as I walked down the trail, I realized it had been taken by the river a half mile. Even though it was a large tree, even though it had many, many branches... It was no longer rooted. And therefore, despite its size, as the current just continued to hit against it and hit against it and hit against it, as the current just beat against that tree, it eventually picked it up. It eventually moved it. It gave up its place and was carried away. Well, I've entitled our study of the book of Daniel, Stand Firm. And I get that from Daniel 11.32, where Daniel is prophesying about a future king, and he says, He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. The people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Now, Herman, who are those people who stand firm against seduction and negative peer pressure? Who are those who stand strong against the current of culture, even when it is pressing on them hard, even when it is pressing on them, it feels like every minute of every day. It is those who are rooted. And what does that mean? It is those who know their God. In our passage this morning, we are going to see that it is God who makes all the difference for Daniel and his friends. The emphasis in these final verses of chapter 1 is not on the teenage boys. The emphasis is on their God and what he did for his purposes in them and through them. So let's look at it together. Daniel chapter 1, beginning in verse 17. 
Daniel 1, verse 17, this is the very word of God. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And at the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. From this passage this morning, I simply want us to note that God was at work in these young men, and he was at work in three ways. In these three ways, he helped prepare them to stand firm in such a way that they would become witnesses to his supremacy and his ultimate value and his worth. And like last time we were in Daniel, we're going to spend almost all of our time on the first point and breeze through the last two. So here we go. Number one, these young men were gifted by the Lord. These young men were gifted by the Lord. And we see this in two verses in our passage. Verse 17, we were told that God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and that he gave Daniel in particular understanding in all visions and dreams. And then in verse 20, we find that Nebuchadnezzar tested these boys and he found them ten times better in wisdom and understanding than the magicians and the enchanters of his kingdom. Now we've already talked in Daniel 1 about how these boys are a fulfillment of Proverbs twenty-two twenty-nine. They were skillful at their work and so now they are standing before kings. They were skillful at their work, and therefore God brought them into a position of influence, standing now before the most powerful man in the ancient world at that time. But here, the emphasis isn't on their hard work. The emphasis isn't on their diligence and learning, as important as those are. In these verses, the emphasis is on God's action. It is God who gave them their learning. It is God who gave them their skill. It is God who gave them their understanding. It was God who enabled these young men to learn well. It was God who caused the light bulbs to turn on as they were given that Babylonian education so that they learned broadly and they learned deeply and they were able to use what they learned in a way that provided good counsel for the king. And isn't that the ultimate purpose of learning? It isn't to fill our heads with knowledge. The goal of learning is to be able to draw on that knowledge with understanding so that we can make wise decisions in the midst of circumstances happening right now. One lesson that we learn here is that if you have learned anything, and we all have, then you ought to give praise and glory and thanksgiving to God. It is God who chooses when we struggle 
to understand something. And it's God who chooses when something comes easy to us. It is God who grants understanding and it is God who withholds understanding at His pleasure. So if you understand anything, and you do, praise God. That is a gift of grace from His hands. And to the degree that you understand something, to that degree you ought to be humble before God and give Him the glory that you understand. Now, knowing that God is sovereign over our learning is not a reason to stop trying. (laughs) If something is hard for you, don't just throw your hands up in the air and say, well, I guess God just sovereignly doesn't want me to get that, right? Don't do that, kids, right? I'm really trying, but it's just not me. I think God doesn't want me to learn math, right? Don't don't do that. Uh, The Bible is clear that God rewards those who diligently seek knowledge. But even as you seek to grow in learning and instruction, and as you seek to do so diligently, working through things that are hard for you, still do so humbly, realizing your dependence on God for the light bulb to come on. And you should thank God for every area of knowledge in which you excel. Now, included in these verses is the statement that God gave Daniel understanding in visions and dreams. And we'll have the opportunity a little bit later, especially when we get to the prophetic portion of Daniel, the second half of Daniel, to address the subject of visions in particular. But in the next two or three chapters, dreams are going to be really important, especially chapter two. Dreams are very important. And so I feel like we need to take a minute to address this issue of dreams. It is this gift from God to Daniel of understanding and interpreting dreams that is going to elevate him to the high role in Nebuchadnezzar's court that he will obtain. And since this raises all kinds of questions, I want to take a few moments to share some words about how we as Christians are to think about dreams. We did this back when we looked at Joseph, and you'll continue to notice some real similarities between Joseph and Genesis and Daniel in the book of Daniel. There are a lot of similarities. God loves these kinds of things in his providence. And so we're going to talk for just a few minutes about dreams. The interpretation of dreams was the title of one of Sigmund Freud's most influential books. It was in that book, The Interpretation of Dreams, that we first find Freud introducing some of his most important and influential theories, including that, for example, of the Oedipus complex that you've probably heard of before. According to Freud, dreams are a form of wish fulfillment in which your unconscious is trying to resolve conflicts. Our unconscious looks to the past, tries to figure out what we should have done, or looks to something that's before us right now, or looks to something in the future, and tries to come up with what you should do. However, Freud argued that while your conscious self is civilized, your unconscious self is uncivilized. And so often the issues and the resolutions that your unconscious is dealing with, they are so traumatic or even outright disturbing that there's a part of us, Freud called it the pre-conscious, that serves as a censor. 
The preconscious will not allow certain information to be passed from our unconscious to our conscious self unless that information is watered down and made more acceptable and civilized. And so, Freud said that this is what dreams are all about. Dreams are full of symbols with figures and events that actually represent something else in our unconscious. Freud called dreams the royal road to the unconscious. And he believed that by analyzing dreams, we could find out what's really troubling us. In his last edition of the interpretation of dreams, Freud included an appendix in which he explained common symbols in dreams and what he believed they really meant. Now, I am not an expert on Sigmund Freud by any stretch of the imagination. Everything I just told you came from Wikipedia. Okay? Take that with a grain of salt. But what is interesting about all of that is that Freud impacted millions of people with his theories so that even today there are a lot of people who are convinced that we should be analyzing our dreams, interpreting our dreams in order to figure out what our real problems are. If you are dealing with anxiety or frustration or despair, here is the answer, the royal road to the unconscious. Analyze your dreams and you'll find the help you need. At one point, I went to Amazon.com, and under books, I just searched the word dreams. Six of the top seven results were these. Dream Sight, a dictionary and guide for interpreting any dream. The Complete Dream Book, discover what your dreams reveal about you and your life. 10,000 Dreams Interpreted, or What's in a Dream, a scientific and practical exposition. Dream Psychology, by Sigmund Freud. The Dream Book, Symbols for Self-Understanding, and The Dream Dictionary, an A to Z guide to understanding your unconscious mind. I find it quite interesting that though we consider our society far more civilized than the Babylonians and others of the ancient world, in this regard, we're actually much like the pagans of the past. Pagan civilizations took dreams very seriously. The key difference is that the ancient Babylonians believed dreams were a message from some god or some goddess, while many in our society believe that our dreams come from our unconsciousness. In other words, our culture believes that truth we need to discover is not coming from outside of ourselves, not coming from some deity, but that the truth we need to discover to give us true peace is buried in here. And through interpreting our dreams, we can discover it. Uh, Ancient civilizations had men who were well-practiced at the art of interpreting dreams to let people know what the gods were saying to them. Modern America has psychologists and psychoanalysts who are practiced at the art of interpreting dreams to let people know what their unconscious is saying to them. We've simply replaced the pagan deity with the unconscious self. Ancient civilizations used these interpretations to make important decisions for their societies. And there are some modern Americans who use dream interpretations to make important decisions in their lives. Uh, 
Ancient civilizations believed that dreams were symbolic and they produced texts telling us what various symbols mean. You can find Egyptian text, Assyrian text, Babylonian text telling us what dream symbols mean. And of course, in our day, as I just read from Amazon, many modern Americans still believe that dreams are symbolic and that we can have books that tell us what the symbols mean. So, some things change but they still stay the same, don't they? As Christians, we are to look to the Bible to find our approach to thinking about dreams. So very quickly, four truths concerning dreams. These are at least four truths I think I can give you with biblical certainty. This is a tough issue. There's a lot of unknown stuff here. There's a lot the Bible doesn't tell us about dreams, but this is four truths that I think I can give you with biblical certainty about dreams that will set us up for the next few chapters of Daniel. Number one, God's prophetic revelation to man has come to fullness in the scriptures. God's prophetic revelation to man has come to fullness in the scriptures. Hebrews 1, 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. In the Old Testament, God spoke through prophets, and often He did this through dreams. Often, prophets saw visions or had dreams where God revealed to them what they were to say. In Daniel's case, sometimes the dreams didn't even come to him the dreams came to others but daniel fulfilled a prophetic office as god gave him the infallible interpretation of dreams his dreams nebuchadnezzar's dreams more common was for god's word to come to prophets through their own visions or dreams that they themselves experienced now remember what a prophet is in the bible both old testament and new testament Prophets are people who speak a message from God with both infallibility and divine authority. The message delivered by a prophet was from God and was therefore absolutely true. If a prophet claimed to speak a message from God and that message proved to be false, God's law demanded that that person be executed. To claim that God had spoken when God had not spoken was considered a capital offense. Moreover, prophets were able to say, thus says the Lord, when they spoke, and others were obligated to hear and to believe and to obey. Well, Jesus is the ultimate prophet. Jesus is the very word of God himself, Until Jesus, there was a progression of revelation as God revealed more and more about himself and salvation over hundreds of years. But then came the best word. Then came the final word, Jesus Christ. And now, through Christ and his apostles laying the cornerstone, the foundation for the church, progressive revelation has come to an end. It's come to its climax. Jesus revealed God's truth through his apostles and his prophets. He laid that foundation for the church. Now the word of God is complete and sufficient, and it is provided for us in the pages of the Bible. What's the point of all this? It is to the scriptures. 
that we are to look. It is to the Scriptures that we are to look for counsel and wisdom and understanding. God has even threatened to curse anyone who dares to add to the pages of this book. So don't go looking for God speaking to you in an infallible, prophetic kind of way like that happened in the Old Testament. It is my understanding that we are not to look at our dreams as prophetic words from God. As we'll see in a moment, I do believe some benefit can be found by considering our dreams, but we must never, ever think of our dreams as special messages from God revealing to us truths from heaven. God communicated that way in the past, but now we have the better. Now we have something more sure, the prophetic word in the pages of the Bible to which we would do well to pay attention. Mount Hermon, I have encountered people, and I imagine you have too, and I hope none of you are one of them, who will say, I know the Bible says this, but God spoke to me in a dream. So I'm doing this. You ever met anybody like that? Usually they're more of the charismatic flavor, okay? But they, they will say, I know the Bible says this, but God spoke to me, vision or dream, so I'm doing this. The Bible gives us no grounds for that in these New Testament days. Number two, our dreams are appointed for us by God in the same way that all other aspects of our lives are appointed for us by God. In other words, it would be wrong. <laughs> it would be wrong for me to stand before you this morning and tell you that your dreams do not come to you from God. Of course they come to you from God. In the sense that everything that happens in your life comes to you from God. His providence encompasses all of your life. And so certainly if God has ordained all that comes to pass, he has ordained your dreams the crazy ones, the disturbing ones, the happy ones, your, your dreams do come to you from God. Why did you have this dream and not that dream? Why did you have a vivid dream that you can remember well on this night and you, you only can hardly remember the one from the night before? Ultimately, behind every other explanation is the sovereign will of God. What this means, though, is that we should read our dreams the same way we read the rest of God's providence in our lives. Um, today I was in the store, ran into an old friend. God, what are you up to there? Okay, I wasn't really just giving an example. Okay, so so you know, so you, you tomorrow, right? You you run into an old acquaintance you hadn't seen them in years, and all of a sudden that person is boom right back in your life. You're reading the providence of God. God, what you doing? Right, we're reading the providence of God. Uh, maybe maybe you, you were reading a book yesterday and now, it's, and now you know, it, it's today and you've got a quote in your mind and it, it's just sticking in your mind, right? Why is that quote, God, what are you doing? What are you, why is that quote sticking with me? We can think about our dreams the way we think about the rest of the events in our lives. Yes, God's hand is behind it. Yes, perhaps we should consider what God is up to. But read your dreams like you would read Providence, which means not infallibly. You may have a guess as to why God brought that friend back into your life. You may have a guess, an educated guess, as to why that quote from that book keeps sticking in your mind, but your guess may not prove to be true. 
In the same way, you may have a guess as to why God ordained for you to have that dream that you had last night, but your guess may not be right. It isn't wrong to try and read God's providence and get a sense of what he's up to, but it is wrong to elevate your interpretation of events so that you allow that, instead of God's clearly revealed word, to begin to govern and guide and direct your life. Number three, we can analyze our dreams to learn about ourselves. We can analyze our dreams to learn about ourselves. Freud was wrong about a lot of things. Even most modern psychologists now tell you Freud was wrong about a lot of things. But he was most likely right that our dreams do spring up from within ourselves. He claimed that our dreams come from our unconscious. I think a more biblical way of talking would be to say that our dreams spring from what's in our hearts. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the heart, the brain dreams. One of the reasons that God might have us remember a particular dream is to give us a glimpse of what's happening in our hearts. Don't analyze your dreams for a prophetic word about the future, but you might consider if your dream is revealing something to you about what's in your heart. Is it revealing a particular sin you need to deal with? What do your dreams say about what you're longing for? Do you find your dreams to be full of anger or full of lust or full of despair? And could it be that these are also sins that you're noticing in your life when you're awake? So certainly you can analyze your dreams that way. But number four, we should be sober-minded and cautious concerning our dreams. And what I mean by this is this. Don't ever let a dream that you had become the basis of important decisions in your life. A dream might can give you hints of what's going on in your heart, but you should look elsewhere for firmer proof. Look to your thoughts while you're awake. Look to your words. Look to what occupies you and what gets your attention and what gets you excited. These, in a more, far more certain way than your dreams, reveal to you the true condition of your heart. And of course, test everything according to the Scriptures. Okay, so those are, that's our, my parenthesis on dreams. Close parenthesis, okay? And if you have more questions about dreams, talk to Pastor Merle. He will be happy to answer those for you, and I, I'm sure he will. So, All right, uh, as we sum up this first point, namely that these young men were gifted by the Lord, right? So they were gifted with understanding. They were gifted with learning and skill. Daniel was gifted in the understanding of dreams and visions. Let me ask you a question. What are your gifts? God gave these teen boys these gifts, right? What has he given you? What are the strengths that you have? In what areas has God particularly suited you to be able to serve others? As you think about this, think particularly in two arenas. First, think about the local church. Because it's in the context of the local church that Peter says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So you, dear Christian, are a steward. And you are a steward of grace that has come to you in the form of gifts. 
And Peter says that what it looks like to be a good steward of your gifts is that you use them. You use them in the service of your fellow brothers and sisters in a local body. Do me a favor. Look at each other for a minute. Just see each other. See each other's faces. Look around at each other. See your brothers and sisters in Christ in this place. Are they benefiting from the gifts that God has given you? Can you look around this room and can you say, yes, so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. Yes, they are benefiting from gifts that God has given me that I have been exercising to serve them. Are you being a faithful steward of your giftedness? This body needs you. This body needs your gifts. It's through your gifts that you help this body shine more brightly in this world. It's, it's how Christ keeps this body healthy. It, it's, how you, it's how Christ keeps this body holy. We need your gifts. You are a part of something big. You are a part of something eternal. Dear friends, as Christians with spiritual gifts, you are a part of something with huge implications. And as you use your gifts to serve others in this room, you are partnering with God in His great mission. You are doing kingdom work. Your serving may not feel that great and lofty. (laughs) Your using your gift may feel very mundane but you are doing something big. You are storing up treasures in heaven. You you are working with gospel and lasting impact when you use your giftedness to serve others. And then second, as you think about this question, think about our society and think about our culture. Because God used these teen boys and their gifts in order to influence others in the pagan culture around them for good and godliness. What might the gifts God has given you provide you the opportunity to do for Christ's sake? Where maybe do you have an opportunity to be a witness that other Christians wouldn't have access to? But because of some skill that God's given you, some knowledge you have, some ability you have, some connection you have, some relationship you have, God has done something in His providence and gifted you in some way that now you have access to be a witness here Whereas 99%, 90%, 80%, 50%, other Christians would not. And how are you wielding that witness? Are you being a faithful steward of your gifts? Well, as promised, I'm only going to say a word or two about our other two points. So here we are. Second truth is this. These young men were exalted by the Lord. They were gifted by the Lord. They were exalted by the Lord. Through the gifting God had given them, and by working in the heart of Nebuchadnezzar, God brought these young men into a high position. Look at verses 18 and 19. At the end of time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found, like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king, meaning he kept them around. <laughs> he gave them a place in his court. He wanted them nearby to have an influence on him, to be his counselors, to be his advisors. Dear Christian, 
What positions of influence do you have? What areas of authority has God given to you? And are you being faithful with those positions? Are you using your influence for good? Are you being salt and light and a witness for Jesus Christ and His supremacy over all things in the places and positions where you have influence and authority, whether it be in the home, whether it be in the workplace, whether it be in a neighborhood group, some other organization? How are you using your influence? And finally, third truth. These young men were sustained by the Lord. Gifted by the Lord, exalted by the Lord, and then sustained by the Lord. God not only gifted them and exalted them, but he helped them persevere. In their case, he's going to sustain them through a furnace of fire. He's going to sustain them through a lion's den. So this is not some small thing. Oh, and he sustained them. No, 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 no. This is, this is big, okay? And while you're persevering and being faithful to God in positions of influence, it may not include lions. It still is going to include some trials and some obstacles, isn't it? Many of you have already experienced in your workplaces and in relationships walls that have come to you because of your Christian faith and your Christian principles. And Christ, it's going to be Christ who sustains your faith and keeps you in those areas of influence as long as He wills. Friends, each and every day that we have a position of influence is a gift. We should be thankful for God's protection and His upholding hand, and we should lean on Him. We should trust that God's timing is perfect, And we should persevere in faithfulness until he removes us from one role of service into another. And you say, Justin, how do I persevere? How do I stand strong and persevere in being faithful to Jesus in the areas of position and influence and authority he has given me? And you already know the answer because we already saw it because we started with it at the beginning. Who stands firm? The people who know their God. Be still. And know that he is God. How is your walk with the Lord? Evaluate your relationship right now. How is your communion with God? Is it strong? Are you truly walking with God each day? Or is it like you leave God at home and you're out on your own in the world trying to handle things on your own, dealing with situations right in here, and then you're, you're coming back to God at home? Or maybe it's you're leaving God here in your mind. You're, you're with God now. As soon as church is over, he, he's still here, and you're over here trying to live a life apart from God. No, as a Christian, we are to walk with God every moment. We are to pray without ceasing. We are to be meditating on the Word of God as we have relationships, as we make decisions, as we interact with other people. We are to be communing with God. Who stands firm? The people who know, who are in relationship with, who commune with. As Gospel of John group Wednesday night, the people who are abiding in Christ, dwelling in Him, settled in Him, they are the ones who stand firm. It is in the gospel that we find our firm footing, the most precious truth in the world. Jesus Christ died for sinners. The faith that we have that heaven is in our future,
and that Christ is working all for our good and that our sins are gone forever. It is standing there that helps us be faithful and to persevere. Let's pray.